Greetings, citizen. Welcome to the show, and thank you for listening. For more of the art of wargaming in your life, definitely check us out on Instagram and Facebook. If you'd like to support the show, we have a Patreon account where you can do just that for as little as $1 a month. What we can offer will expand as the show does. If you don't have extra funds, but would still like to help us out, you can give us a like, share, or five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to get in touch? Feel free to message us or hit up our email, artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com. We look forward to continuing the conversation with you because we know the world is vast, with many different ideas on tactics and strategy that can be applied to the games we enjoy. You're listening to the Art of Wargaming on the Ear Firm Network. On War. Branches of War. Welcome to the Art of Wargaming on the Ear Verm Network. I am Yaga Malark. Today's episode concerns branches of the art of war. But before we get into that, this is another one of those episodes that deals primarily in camp issues and politics. Now, I know that there's been a lot of these, and it may seem somewhat unusual, especially for something that deals with wargaming like our show, that we continue to cover this. Well, there's a couple of reasons why I continue to invest in this particular part of the literature. The first one being is that I'm trying to stay true to the the flow of what these military theorists are talking about. And for them, the political issue is just as important as the military one, especially like Clausewitz says several times that war is the continuation of politics. And so to understand the points that a lot of these guys are making, we have to understand the context in which it is coming from. And that context, of course, is political. War wasn't just done for war's sake. It's not so much like our games in that, like for our, a 40k game, it's a one-off. You, me, a board, and then we're done. It's not a long campaign, a grueling set of, of battles that take the place over years or decades or centuries and the politics that build up around those, the, the interplay of the nation states and the monarchies that have always existed, these things make a difference when we're talking about the strategies and the tactics that we inherit from this time. So that's a big reason why I include them. And two, I think it's a v- vital part of human interaction that very few of us actually think about. You know, we, we have friends, we have people that we hang out with, we have people that we're drawn to for certain reasons. And I think there's something to actively examining why we do things and, and what works within a social context. So I really like these episodes. And for those of you who may not, I am sorry for that. I hope that they're still interesting to you, if not uh, particularly useful for the tabletop or for the field. And this episode, I think, is going to break with that pattern. You know, a lot of them have to do with with outdoors stuff uh, exclusively for Belagarth or for, usually for Belagarth if we're talking politics and camp. But this particular episode, when we get in toward the end of section one, I'm going to be talking about different types of injuries and kind of how to do uh, first responder type triage to a lot of those injuries as they take place. Again, in the matter of most injuries, get to a hospital unless you've got somebody who is a medic nearby like an actual medic and even then they're probably going to fix the person up and tell them to get to a hospital but being able to identify these things and at least know what to do in the interim is a good idea so that's going to be useful to anybody who spends 
time. I mean, if you're if you're engaging with your environment, you might risk any of these types of injury that we're going to be talking about. So I hope this episode is particularly useful for you in this way. Now, as we've been going through this, obviously, some of these episodes are going to be more geared toward intellectual wargaming like 40k, and other ones are going to be more geared toward outdoors, you know, field combat type wargaming like Bell. A lot of the stuff that deals with tactics or with socialization and politics, those ones are going to be more Bell, uh, Belagar centric, whereas the ones that are strategy and involve uh, the overarching idea of the interplay of different combats and that sort of thing, well, that one is going to be far more up 40k's alley. So I know that the episodes tend to go back and forth. We do both, but there's some of them that I, I would really have to stretch. Like this one, I would really have to stretch a lot of this for it to apply to 40k. Like, I'm, I'm sorry guys, but the, you know, these different types of injuries, we're not going to go into that sort of detail. Unless you're doing like kill team or something, but even then it's not treated and it's not the same way as we're looking at here. So that is more centric around Belagarth. Whereas there's obviously episodes that deal with large motions or, you know, strategic thinking in an overall operational sort of sense. And these are going to be far more centric around something like 40k, I guess what I'm saying. So long story short, I'm glad you're here for both. And I hope you're learning and being able to take things from both types of episode. But let's get into some games. I've been a busy little uh, war gamer on this side of things and has been, uh, have been playing quite a bit of games. The first one I want to talk about is between me and Toto, who was just on recently. Uh, he brought his Grey Knights. Now, He's relatively new to the game, and he went with Grey Knights because they're very well good in the meta, and he wanted to kind of start on good footing. If you know anything about Toto, it's that he craves and strives for the advantage, which any military theorist would say, you know, go buddy. So he went after the Grey Knights, and he had a pretty decent team put together. You know, I, I, we kind of sat there and made sure that he had a battalion, and that I had my little battalion of Gene Steeler Colt, and, and we kind of went at it. Now, I've been using this same list of Gene Steeler Colt here for a second, and it's the, the same one that I took against Turkey Feathers. I believe last episode I talked about that. And it's, it's the big Goliath truck with a mining laser, um, a ridge runner with a mining laser, two groups of neophytes with mining lasers, a group of acolytes with heavy rock cutters, and uh, Gene Steeler's Patriarch Magus, Primus, Kellermorph, and... Sanctus, yes. <laughs> so it's it's a pretty good list, very character heavy, as most Gene Steeler lists uh, tend to be. And I was going against, he had the, the big robot dude, like baby carrier man, the three strike squads, and a group of intercessors. So he was he was good to go as well. I was not expecting to do well, but I feel like I played my army very well, and the dice gods were on my side. The Grey Knights are supposed to be a psyker heavy faction that are you know kicking off smites like every single turn he was having a hard time getting any of his powers off smites included and the ones he did get off of course i've got my mages there next to my neophytes and they're out in front so the smites coming in are automatically blocked whereas the magus can sit there and go out and block things like gate of infinity so honestly i think gene stealer cult is one of those armies that is really well positioned to initially deal with Grey Knights. Now, once we start getting into the shooting phase and into the melee phase, that idea quickly falls apart. But 
at least initially when we're closing ranks, yeah, Gene Cult seems to work really well. So I, I managed to swarm and take out some key units. And then I occupied half of the board just with sheer positioning. Like he, he did, there was no deep strike range back there, which was sheer luck. I, I did not do that on purpose. Uh, wait a second. I mean, I totally did that on purpose. Wink, wink. Or at least I will next time, no doubt. So I ended up winning that one. And to no fault of Toto, he played well. But the dice, when the, when the dice hate you, the dice hate you. And that particular day, oh, woof. So the next game I want to talk about was between myself and Turkey Feathers. We have started up a crusade game between myself, Turkey Feathers, and Kaji. Uh, I've never done anything like this before. It's primarily narrative play, which is another thing I haven't done before. I've done almost exclusively matched. And so this is a, a new adventure for me, and I'm rather enjoying it. So we've got the three of us in this, this crusade idea. I am playing the Death Guard. Uh, Turkey Feathers is playing the Blood Angels, and Kaji is playing Tyranids. So this game I had against Turkey Feathers, he brought his Blood Angels, and they were a decent long-range list. You had your Intercessors, you had some Melta Bros, you know, Eradicators, uh, Contemptor Dreadnought. Oh, let me just pause for a second. And I, I believe it's called the Contemptor. It's the one with the, like, the Volkite things that you can get from Forge World. O-M-G. This thing is ridiculous, the number of shots that it puts out. Now, the Death Guard were strangely well put against it because of the, the general toughness level, but dear Lord, that thing could just lay down an impressive amount of fire. But I, I had, uh, my force that time consisted of a bunch of Poxwalkers, some Blightlord Terminators, and then two Goo Boys, a Lord of Virulence and a Foul Blightspawn. The Foul Blightspawn had the Vomitrix, those of you who have played Death Guard, you know what the Vomitrix is. It is a disgusting flamer-type weapon. Uh, Assault 7, Neg 3, AP, 2 damage a pop. Plague weapon, right? So, brutal. Absolutely brutal. I managed to melt most of his stuff just with that. That weapon alone. And then the Blight Lords came in and it was, it was game over. It was just a, a matchup that was in my favor from the very get-go. Had my Pox Walkers out front, absorbed a bunch of shots, once the pox walkers were gone, uh, I had moved forward with my goo boys, and then I had brought down my terminators, who won their charge, and that was the game. So that that was excellent as well. And then my my last game was with Kaji, and this was the Death Guard versus the Nids. And again, I was I was worried about this matchup, and it turned out that I I didn't necessarily need to be, but again, the dice ended up being on my side. So as we were setting up both the game, uh, by the way, the, the game with TF and the game with Kaji, I got the assassinate mission and both times I was the defender. I figured, you know, not, not such a bad thing. Death guard, hard to get places. So there I am. And there happens to be an elevated place in my deployment zone. A place where I can stash my dude up on top and not have to worry about him being down on the ground. And I'm like, heck yeah, I'm going to put my goo boys up there, put some pox walkers around the base and make it so that I've got this nice little buffer uh, between myself and them. And I can just goo and it'll be fine. Because, you know, they got gene stealers, a carnifex, a patriarch. Yeah, it was a, a fairly painful list coming at me. And I forgot one key thing going up there. And I realized it right after everything started. And I was like, oh my goodness, I, <laughs> I absolutely forgot that uh, it doesn't count. Having those dudes down at the base and me up top, I'm not actually in range for lookout, sir. 
which means that both of my most highly prized units were up with their tails in the wind, asking to get shot. And get shot they did. That Carnifex immediately tried to take my Foul Blight spawn off the field. It was terrifying. I did not want that. And then the Gene Stealers got in. They were, they were doing their work. I gooed them. And then I realized that I wasn't going to be able to stay on the board if I stayed where I was. The Gene Stealers had made short work of my Poxwalkers. And even though I had gotten rid of most of them with my shooting phase, I was still going to have to bear with a psychic phase from the Patriarch, in which they were going to be dealing mortal wounds. I had to deal with a shooting phase from the Carnifex, and the Carnifex is no slouch when it comes to shooting. So I, I thought I'd made a really, really risky maneuver and sent my warlord, my Lord of Virulence, out and just charged the Patriarch, who was right behind the few remaining gene stealers. I, I grouped, or um, multi-charged, and then kind of used the, the pile-in to skirt around and succeed in getting that Patriarch. And punched it in the ground, which was excellent. And then was in a really awkward position because there's no gene stealers were there, right? Gene stealers come in, they got a few hits in. The Carnifex shoots at my other goo boy, doesn't actually manage to kill him, thank goodness, and then rushes in to get a piece as well. I should have died. That guy should have died several times over. There was the gene stealers coming in, there was the shots from the Patriarch who had pulled the death throws. You had the Carnifex who hits like a, a tank. And I was rolling four ups the whole time. <laughs> I just, I, it, I defied logic. It defied logic. Kaji was so mad because I just, I hit all these four up invulns and, oh man, it was hilarious. <laughs> and yeah, and so I, I managed to come back. My Terminators came down, uh, took some folks off the field and it was the most unlikely win that I've had in a long time. I don't think I should have won that one, but I did. So I, you know, I'll take the victory and I'll take the, you know, the spoils that went with it, but oh goodness, <laughs> talk about bad tactical positioning. Ugh. But, uh, that's, that's it for my war gaming experience over the last couple of weeks. Had a lot of fun, hoping to get even more in, in the next several weeks. And I think we're going to move now to our first section concerning form and function. Our main section today concerns form and function in regards to maintenance of a military force. I know that's a, a lot of words, but basically it's, it's how do we maintain what we have? How do we make sure that we're coming to bat with the very best that we can? Now, a good portion of this particular section is going to be a massive part of me picking a fight with a dead guy, because I do not, I do not agree with, uh, Klauswitz's assessment when he, when he talks about the activities concerning war. Uh, something he stresses in this chapter is that the only activities uh, that owe their existence to war count in the quote-unquote art of war. So like tactics, for instance, you know, that's a, an activity that you only do in war, therefore it is part of the art of war. And other things for instance, like subsistence, sanitation, uh, care for the sick, these things are not necessarily a part of the art of war. They're just strictly maintenance. And I take issue with that. For one, I retort with, Klauswitz, you died of cholera. 
So perhaps your assessment of this particular strategic action uh, is, is in question. So yeah, let's, let's keep that in mind. And then the other point is that all activities change in relation to their application. So if we're dealing with civilian versus military application, it's going to be very different in the way that it looks. You know, sanitation as civilians is very different than sanitation as the military, especially if you're deployed, for instance. So the, these activities do change. And the change that they undergo would not exist were war not involved. So that's my big bone that I want to pick with him this particular, this particular session. So yeah, you'll be hearing me talk about that quite a bit. So first off, let's talk about the difference between tactics and strategy. You know, we've talked about this a little bit before, but Clausewitz defines tactics as the use of military force in combat. Pretty straightforward. You guys are fighting. And one of the, the measures that he uses for specifically tactics is how far do you have personal command? How far can I shout? How far can I reasonably get someone else to cooperate with what I'm doing? You know, that's not a whole field type of scenario most of the time. It's, it's a small section. We're talking maybe like up, upwards of 10 people at the max. And so tactics are involving that little section of the world. Strategy is turning combats toward the object of war. You've got all these different actions taking place and moving all of that towards the object of the war is strategy. Now, in something like physical war gaming, you do have a little bit of strategy. You're trying to get to the other side. And these tactics, these, these mini combats are supposed to get you there. But not very often do you have one person controlling that. You have smaller groups moving and maybe there's some communication between those groups. But by and large, that's, it's rather disjointed. You have a lot of individuals moving in a, in a general direction. With something like 40K or chess, you are in control. We get to control what the object of the war is and how we get there. And so all those little things, even, even on the, the Warhammer 40K table, when we're looking at it, you've got all these factors moving towards your objective. And a, a tactic, or the tactics might involve, you know, my this over here where my gene stealers are rushing some terminators. That fight that takes place, the tactics that I'm using to try to get the upper hand in that small section, that's tactics. But all the different little fights that I'm using to push toward an objective or towards a certain number of kills or whatever, that is the overall strategy. So Bell is mostly tactics that incorporates elements of strategy. And 40K is mostly strategy that incorporates elements of tactics is kind of the way that I look at it. And when we're thinking about it, when we're thinking about uh, acquiring the knowledge to really be able to perform in both of these areas, tactics is pretty straightforward. In order to get better at tactics, you do tactics. <laughs> it's, it's one of those things that you can understand a little bit in theory, but it really must be experienced. It really must be taught in the heat of the moment to understand how it is going to work out. You know, there's only so much that we can practice before we actually need to step on the field and experience what it's like. So that comes just from experience. Tactics comes from just experience in general. Strategy can also come from a very great diversity of subjects. A lot of history's greatest generals were well-versed in, in other things, music, poetry, art. There were a lot of different things that they drew from in terms of history, philosophy, all of these different things, all aspects of life can contribute to strategy. 
can unlock an aha moment. So it behooves a commander to really be well-read and well-connected in a lot of different things. And in terms of, uh, you know, something like 40K, not only being well-read in other literature, but being well-read in the literature available. You know, there's, it's one thing to kind of know what the Necrons are when you're going against them. It's a whole nother thing to sit down with their codex and figure out how they work. That diversity of subjects, not just reading my material, but reading somebody else's material, that absolutely influences my strategy and, and hopefully makes it better. Necessity begets this, though. Necessity begets all inventions because they are aimed to turn our disadvantage or neutrality to an advantage. You know, the same necessity that drives this, this study of many different subjects in terms of strategy also drives us to pursue the best gear, to have updated models and armies to fit with whatever meta and rules that we're currently dealing with, you know, lighter weapons. These different things, necessity drives. And we can, we can kind of maneuver around it and figure out creative ways to fulfill that necessity, but it is still what's driving basically everything, all, all the advancements that we're going to make in our war games. So let's talk about maintenance of force when we're concerning tactics. Now this first off deals with the idea of marches and, and in terms of maneuver. We're not talking like marches around the countryside to, you know, set up the battle into a really good position. That is a part of strategy and it's not something we really get a chance to do in any of the wargaming that we do. The battlefield is kind of set. It's not a matter for us to maneuver around to find a really good one in most cases. But the uh, maneuver, like close range maneuver, is something we do all the time. And when we're doing this, we're deploying our forces for two different reasons. We're trying to accomplish the maximum damage that we can to the enemy. And we are trying to protect ourselves, not just our home base, but also the unit that we send out, the people that we send out. Uh, because we, as we've discussed before, it is not enough to do damage to our enemy. We also have to conserve our forces. Local numeric superiority. I think I've used that phrase more times in the last two or three years than I have used in the entirety of my life, but it's a really, 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 really important concept to understand. And it helps protect our numbers. If we are using even small numbers to overwhelm people at, you know, two to one, three to one odds, this conserves our force to be able to fight on longer and longer. So that's, that's the big one. That is the big way to maintain our force concerning tactics on the field. And the orders of march are going to be in constant relation to combat readiness. And that combat readiness is how many people do we have on the field? In what condition are they? Are they well fed? Are they well rested? Are they well hydrated? All these things are going to really impact how we can use this. If everybody's well-read, you've got some young folks that have good knees and are, are into running, well, you've got some orders of march that are very free-flowing. The ability to move around the field really, really freely and, and to kind of capitalize on mobility rather than concentration of force into one area. Now, a difference would be if you've got some older folks, maybe they haven't eaten well, that's going to change the way that they march. But either way, decisive marches often decide battles. Positioning is key. It is, is the beginning of victory or of defeat. To study this is to study the art of war. And to make all of this stick, 
drill is extremely important. We've discussed the idea of forms on here, the video that I still have never put up, and you know what, at this point, it is probably just lost to the ether. Now that I've said that, we're gonna get it together. Watch and learn. There's, of course, exercises to make us stronger and, and better suited for what we're going for, stretches and warm-ups. That's basically how we can conserve our force and maintain our force when we're dealing with tactics. Strategy is an entirely different matter. For 40k, strategy is pretty easy. You put your models in a, in a dry place where they're not going to get overly knocked around, and yay, you've maintained. We, we are <laughs> maintaining our force in terms of strategy. But any sort of physical wargaming, the maintenance of strategy kind of revolves around the camp. And when he's talking about camp, of course, it's the sort of camp that we also think about. Uh, he also talks about cantonments, which are a more permanent and secure structure for us, for our purposes. Let's talk about like an RV or a cabin. And the idea behind these, either camps or cantonments, their primary function is to provide a place to rest and recuperate. That is number one. Number one reason that they exist is to make sure that we can get our our fuel back, be able to get back onto the field with it, with the best sort of energy that we can. And while this is the most important part of a camp, there is also something to be said for its secondary purpose and the strategic placement thereof. If the camp purely exists as a place to go, you know, get your refreshments, kind of get your, your energy back and go back on the field, a camp should be placed closer to the field right? For ease of access, for the idea of a quick <laughs> rebound. Yeah, this would also be something that one would look for in, in most other real fights. You'd want easy access to the field, the ability to deploy when and where you want to deploy. That's an absolute good motive for where, where one might put their camp. The other one would be something like the function of a party camp, places where you're going to be up fairly late, places where uh, it's going to be making quite a bit of noise. The placement of a party camp is also fairly important if you don't want to upset everybody else at the event. And because then they're going to come at you hard the next day. They didn't sleep well. So this is also important as well. If, if one is wanting to make a lot of noise, it is good to be in another part of the camping area that is also into that idea and maybe section off a corner for oneself because the secondary purpose definitely dictates where we're going to place it. Not necessarily its primary purpose, which again is to rest, but that's where we want to put it partially because we can all reach the field easily. It's not like we're marching a day to get there. And these camps and cantonments serve as many cities or territories for the purposes of politics. Again, we have this, this constant interaction between the two. There's this always this interplay of friendships made, friendships broken, hearts broken. Uh, all these different things influence the politics that occur between people. In a perfect world, that wouldn't matter. Everybody would take to the field. It would be a completely different uh, space than off the field. There would be no grudges or, or anything of the like. But we don't live in a perfect world. We live in a world where people are political animals and it's a good thing to understand how that is going to affect. I'm not even talking necessarily about getting directly involved. You know, there's a lot of folks that are like, I don't want to get involved in drama slash politics. It's like, you don't have to be involved. You don't have to be a player in the game 
to observe it and understand how it's going to affect what we want to do. What is our motive? What is our objective? Well, to understand the politics is to understand what might be standing in our way and what might help us get to our objective. So again, uh, that's, that's a huge part of why they exist. Subsistence. Clausewitz had argued that subsistence doesn't fall into the art of war because it is something that we all do all the time. We are all making sure that we want to eat, that we have a source of food. But acquisition is the, is the very crux of military activities. As Napoleon said, an army marches on its stomach and acquiring food for a force that is that large is an endeavor in of itself. Not much else matches that particular thing. You don't usually have a displaced community, a displaced entity that is moving around that requires that level of sustenance. So it's, it's very important. It, it dictates where we can move. It dictates what we can do. It dictates how we can get there. You know, are, are we dependent upon depots and need to remain in a certain range to keep our supply line shortened up to be manageable? Are we more dependent on a forage technique and therefore need to be in an area that is fairly rich in subsistence, you know, food, vittles, drink, all that sort of thing. You know, these different things really dictate what we can do strategically, what we can do in terms of tactics. So I, I think that subsistence is very important. And in terms of an event, it's very important. Again, the ma majority of what we're going to be doing off field is likely trying to acquire food. Now, if we have a plan for that, if there's a, a camp plan, for instance, and we all pitch in and somebody cooks, and so we just know where to be and where to eat, easily done. You know, that's our baggage train technique. We know what's going to be coming. It means people have to bring stuff. It means that folks have to be prepared with that baggage train, but it's, a, it's definitely one of the techniques. Rather than the forage technique, where that's more involved. We're either going from camp to camp, trying to find something, trying to you know, be able to perform some sort of labor for food, or we're going to attempt to find some sort of food truck. You know, either of these ways, it's going to consume time and it's going to affect what we can do. If we find good nourishing food, it's going to help us on the field. If we don't, it's going to slow us down, or at least those of us who suffer from that, those of you who are teenagers or early twenties who perhaps still have that rigorous constitution and can eat anything and process it into pure power. Good for you. If you're older than that, then yeah, this is a consideration for us. The next thing that he said doesn't really apply to military activity. And again, I will point to his manner of death, cholera, is sanitation. Now sanitation is extremely important to what we're doing and how we interact with everything. Infections are pretty darn common. Even if everybody's trying to be careful, even if nobody willfully comes to an event sick in some way, doubtlessly that sort of thing springs up, not just in terms of, you know, people bringing it in, but also surfaces being infected. There's bacteria literally everywhere. I don't know if you knew, <laughs> bacteria everywhere. And so the idea of preventing infection is of course, well, contributes to strategy. If we can be on the field longer and we're not completely wiped out. I remember last episode, we were talking about the, uh, the battle between the Austro-Hungarians, the Habsburgs, and the French at Valmy. And one of the big factors coming into it for the, Hung or for the uh, Habsburgs 
was that their troops had just been suffering from an epidemic. And a lot of them were, uh, you know, not really battle ready. And that massively affected their ability to perform, massively affected their ability to uh, perform any sort of strategy, what they could do with those strategies. So I would, I would argue that sanitation is, is important as well. But for us, we also have to deal with the kitchen. You know, is the kitchen well-maintained? We were just talking about a baggage train for food. Well, is it a baggage train of food that's also going to be dishing out food poisoning? Let's hope not. So the kitchen is a really important place to sanitize, not just the, the public areas. And we've talked about having hand-washing stations, especially in the post-COVID era. I think uh, that might not be a bad idea. And keeping our personal space clean is also good for sanitation, not living in filth, as it were, or giving places for mold to grow. I've definitely seen that. Not so much in the West, but in the Southeast, uh, there was a, an event that I went to that was decently long. And like day three, I, I had had somebody, somebody I knew who had been out and it rained the first day and their clothes had gotten sopping wet. And I just basically threw them into a corner of their tent and didn't think about it anymore. Well, about time they came to move it, it was moldy. And that was nasty. Like it, it popped up quick. And so that personal space got real nasty real fast. And that's, that's not just the only thing that can happen. We're talking about all sorts of different things that can lead to a personal space not being very livable in a lot of ways. So that's a really important thing. And then, of course, there's the hygiene products. You know, soap, toothbrush, deodorant. Well, I don't necessarily wear deodorant in the field. I think it's silly. But if you're a person who wants to slash needs it, that, you know, that's a different story. Uh, I'm not going to dictate what you need to do. And of course, with this idea of hygiene, it's important to bring along whatever we th might think we need, you know, personally speaking. Next would be the supply and repair of arms. Another thing that I would think really influences our strategy. You know, if we go to the field and we brought a bunch of blues, a bunch of, you know, small one-handed swords, and they break, like all of them get the tips snapped off. And we, we've got, you know, kind of a smattering of other stuff. Well, if we had a strategy that was based or built around that particular weapon set, well, now our strategy has to change because we no longer have access to that weapon. So the ability to repair is very important. So a, a triage kit is usually called for. In, in 40K, this is really important too because every now and then you're going to lose a piece. Now, these are kind of spindly and occasionally fragile models. So something might pop off that needs to be repaired. So making sure that we have some uh, files, and some glue nearby, at the very least, can help us put everything back together in time for our next game. In terms of a foam fighting event, having your knife, foam, tape, glue, like whatever we're going to need to really repair what we've got is, is also important. And at a lot of events, we have stores. You know, you have places where you can go and buy a weapon if you need to. And if you're looking for a new one, this is awesome. But also, if we're looking to replace something... It can also be used for that. So these ones are very important for, I, again, I think that this is very important for strategy in terms of what we are actually capable of. And now I'm going to talk about care for the sick. Again, something that I'm, I'm just baffled. I'm baffled that one wouldn't consider this a part of strategy. And then you have to think that this was a time in history where a good treatment for any sort of injury, like injury that might get an infection, was, well, let's take a saw to it. 
So there wasn't a whole lot of strategy <laughs> or a whole lot of like fine application of caring for the sick at this particular time. Now we have some obvious ways to care for the sick in our particular sport. And, and suffice to say that, you know, it don't, let's not go to events sick. Let's just not, even, even if we, you know, we think we're going to be safe. Like if we've got a cold, you know, just maybe don't you got the flu. Yeah. Just, you know, maybe don't strep. Yeah. Stay away. Please stay away. And COVID. Well, yeah, no, I mean, you're not gonna be able to get in most places anyways. There's a lot of folks that require vaccine cards now, but regardless, let's not go and get our friends sick. Let's just not. Your obvious triage kit for any, any, any medic, medic worth their salt. And if you don't have a medic in your camp, then you should acquire these things because then, aha, you've become the medic and they are important. First off, painkillers. Going to be one of the most sought after things at any sort of fighting event. Going to have to have those anti-inflammatories on hand. They're really good. Don't overdo it, but they're really good in order to get us back into fighting shape. Bandages, of course, we're talking band-aids, gauze, anything that might need, uh, one might need to treat any sort of like slashing wound. Now, I, I don't mean like, you know, massive slash from a knife or anything. I guess if you do the, the steel fighting, that might be a case. But I'm speaking more about, you know, you get caught on some sort of hazard, you know, a, you know, a stick, a rock, whatever. You know, that that's, might present us with a case where we're going to need this. In most cases, foam fighting shouldn't, shouldn't give you these issues. Antihistamines are important in case somebody starts having an allergic reaction of some sort. Antihistamines are great to have on hand. Disinfectant, whether it be for a wound or for a surface, very important. You know, those bacteria we were talking about, don't know if you knew, they're everywhere. A splint of some sort, whether it be just a generic splint or I've got a splint for both wrists that I usually bring. I haven't needed to use them in years, but just in case somebody needs one, I've got them. You've got your anti-nausea medication and anti-diuretics, because if we're in the field, those things can actually present a huge issue. And then tampons. And not just for, for the case of a feminine hygiene, you know, somebody might need one and that's absolutely legitimate too, but they are fantastic for blocking up nosebleeds. Just fantastic. So having those on hand too, in your little medic bag is a really good idea. So let's move on to some more specific injuries kind of how to identify them and maybe how to treat them in the short term. And then of course, how to prevent them, which is honestly the most important part of any of these conversations. We're going to start with sports injuries, which are going to be the most common for what we're talking about. First, you have a strain of some sort, and this is something that occurs to a muscle or a tendon. And we usually call it a pulled muscle. You, you, know, you pulled your groin, you pulled your quad. And we all know what this feels like. If you ever pulled a muscle, it hurts and, and it's very uncomfortable. Most of the time, unless it's extremely severe, it heals naturally. You know, it's, not, it's usually not that big of a deal. And the way that we prevent it is by warming up, making sure that we do good warm-ups, stretching both before and after, and also just, you know, stretching throughout the day, even if we're not specifically exercising, just making sure that we're limber is a huge way to prevent injury. And then water. You're going to hear me say that after just about every one, because guess what helps with just about every issue that us water bags have? Water. Just drink water. Unless you're drowning. Maybe don't drink the water then. Next one is a sprain. 
And this is very much like a strain, but it occurs to a ligament. Now, ligaments don't bounce back in the same way that muscles and tendons do and tend to take longer to heal. They also have an issue of relapse. You know, once you've actually gotten a sprain, it is far easier to sprain it again. So if you've had an ankle sprain, for instance, or you sprain your knee, it is good to avoid putting that kind of <laughs> strain on it again. In a lot of cases, some sort of brace isn't a bad idea. And we avoid getting sprains by warming up, stretching, utilizing proper technique is a really good thing here too. And then of course, drinking water. And a, a quick side note, I had looked up and I saw that there was no jammed, like having a jammed joint is one of the most common things that I see in something like Balagarth. And a jam is actually either a strain or a sprain or can be a fracture. But whatever it is, it's, it's pushing your joint or it's pushing your, your appendage back into the joint. So in the case of your hand, it basically pushes your finger into the joint behind it. And this causes, you know, some sort of injury. And it, again, it can be from a lot of different things. It can be from a inflammation. It can be from a, a strain or a sprain, a small fracture. So it, jamming your finger can mean a bunch of different things. Knee injuries, which the, the site I was looking at decided to put in a category all of its own because they are so common and so specific. And these ones are not, I haven't seen them as much, but they are a really big deal. You know, strains and sprains I've seen quite a bit in what we do, but knee injuries I've only seen rarely and they are a big deal. You know, first off, you've got your ACL or cartilage tears. Now these are exquisitely painful from what I understand. I have been lucky enough in my life to never have suffered either of these injuries, but I know people who have, and, and it is bad. And you're going to know. <laughs> it's one of those ones that you don't sit there and think, I think my cartilage just tore. You're, you know, you know that it tore. Uh, dislocation, also very common, uh, and fractures. I think I've told you all the story about one of the, the worst knee injuries I've ever seen. And it occurred during a game of Bellegarth with my students at the gladiator school. We were running around and it wasn't even from an actual weapon. He had run behind me and he clipped my heel with his foot. I didn't even know he was there. And he clipped my heel and he went down just a normal little fall, but he landed just weird. And the next time I turned around, he's just howling, just howling and swearing up a storm. And I, you know, I, what is going on? That's, you know, this is above and beyond the normal, uh, you know, showboating that people do in like soccer or whatever. And I start to look at it and yeah, his kneecap isn't where it's supposed to be. You know, it's supposed to be in like the front of your leg there. Well, it was kind of at a 90 degree angle off to the side. So that was, that was rough. And again, that wasn't even from getting hit necessarily. He just didn't went down wrong. And so a good way to avoid any sort of knee injury, of course, is warm up, stretching, proper posture is really important. And then padding. We have these wonderful things called knee pads. And even if you have never suffered a knee injury dropping down, the chances of just dropping weird and incurring one are high enough to just warrant wearing them. What, I, I, I just don't understand what the, what the point is of not wearing knee pads. I mean, we learn to move in them. It's not a matter of, of never being able to work right in them. So, you know, if we don't want knee injuries, wear knee pads. Pretty easy. And just straight up fractures can occur anywhere, though. And fractures are a big deal. You've got a break in the bone and that can take weeks or even like a, a surgery to heal properly. And so 
you know, this is a fairly serious injury that none of us want to experience. And in order to avoid getting fractures, we need to have the appropriate padding as well. You know, for us, in terms of sword fighting, the very bare minimum that we should have is padded gloves, making sure that we're protecting our hands. With You know, hand shots aren't necessarily, they don't kill. They're not something that we're aiming for within Belagarth necessarily, but they do happen and they hurt. You know, that's, that's a really good place to get injured. I've got some, some friends, like, a, you know, TF was sitting there with his hand folded in half, not the place that it was supposed to be folded. And part of that was because he wasn't wearing proper hand protection. He, he did after that. Let me, I'll tell you what, he did after that. So yeah, at the very least wearing hand protection, a, a lacrosse gloves are the best that I have found for it. So that is huge. And making sure that we have strong muscles, you know, having, having those muscles in the area is going to prevent having fractures. It keeps everything together and it provides that little bit of extra padding. You know, if we're receiving a blunt force trauma from a weapon, then having that padding between the weapon and our bone is a really good idea. So having muscle is a great way to prevent fractures as well. Using proper technique and then pacing ourselves. If we start to get sloppy, then we start to get really, really in danger of breaking something. So pacing ourselves and making sure to listen to our bodies. If something hurts, listen to that. That whole work through the pain or no pain, no gain thing, like that works up to a point, like absolutely push ourselves is a good idea, but not to such a point that we increase our likelihood of injury. That kind of takes us in the other direction. It's counterproductive. Repetition injuries, also very common. Uh, you know, this is kind of like your tennis elbow sort of idea, and it comes from having strained ligaments. And a good way to get around this also is to pace yourself. We're making sure to take breaks. I know that the temptation to just go all day, every day is absolutely there. And even, especially if you're young, but that's almost the most important time to be taking those breaks that you don't get old and broken quite as fast. And then of course we have warming up and stretching. Shin splints. Also very common. I had a good friend in basic training who she, every time she ran, she got these and it was it was excruciating to watch, but you know, she was a trooper and she pushed through the pain, but it was the army and that's kind of what she did. But shin splints are inflammation from overactivity. And anybody who's had them knows that they are extremely uncomfortable, if not extremely painful, especially since you usually have to keep moving if you're on them. Now we can prevent these with proper stretches in the areas that we would think would get shin splints. And so it is not important, not only important to stretch like the calf muscle and the hamstrings, but to stretch the front of the, of the leg as well by, you know, putting your, your foot down and stretching that, the ankle and all the way up to the, the front of the knee there, because that's a really common place to get shin splints, hence the name shin splints. So making sure that we stretch that area properly is a good way to avoid this particular injury. Spine injuries, which can be a very big deal. You've got two different ways you can kind of arrive at it. One is long-term inflammation and another one is a jarring impact, you know, as a sudden just boom hit. And both of these things can result in some fairly serious issues and sometimes very permanent issues like slipped discs or, or you know, the needing to be fused or, or even nerve damage. These things, uh, spine injury can be a very big deal. And not everything, you know, sometimes they will just happen. If you get a hard enough hit, a lot of times uh, there's not a whole lot you can do about it. But... And to order to prevent it in at least a small way, 
we can have a strong and flexible back. So we're working on strength, not just in the back, but in the core, because that's where a whole lot of the ability to protect our back comes from, which is with a strong core, and then keeping ourselves flexible so that those jarring impacts don't meet with some sort of inflexible rod and just snap us. And then regular activity, making sure that we're moving around regularly and that spine is moving and is not uh, something that is going to be easily injured, is out of place with bad posture. The last sports injury that we're going to cover is concussion. Concussions are a big deal and we need to pay attention when they happen. Uh, and of course, this comes from a sudden blow to the head, right? And a good indicator that somebody might be concussed is they have a headache, they might be dizzy, sleepy, uh, loss of consciousness is always a big deal. Uh, the whole eye dilation thing, if you're not a medic, you're not going to know what you're looking for, so don't try it. Uh, but sometimes it's very obvious if people's eyes are just wide as the moon. But hospital, 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 hospital. <laughs> a lot of these ones, obviously you're trying to get to a hospital. Sprains, uh, knee injuries, fractures, um, spine injuries, and concussion. The, this What we're doing here is attempting to prevent them or just sort of keep them from getting worse. The idea with any of this is to get to a hospital because none of us is so far removed that we can't do that. The next sort of injury that is very common with what we do, especially during the summertime, are heat injuries. Now here in the Northern Hemisphere, we're beginning to enter, of course, the winter time. So these aren't going to be a very big issue for the next little while, but they are also a very big issue when it comes to summer. So I hope that those of us in the Northern Hemisphere might come back and listen to this one, or at least take notes in order to, to see these and understand how to treat them and prevent them. Y'all in the Southern Hemisphere, this is going to be right up your alley. So enjoy <laughs> some heat injuries or lack thereof, I guess. You know, the first one, and this one's very common, sunburn, right? I don't know anybody who hasn't had a sunburn. And the symptoms are fairly obvious. You got red, painful, itchy skin. It's hot to the touch. Now remember, this can also occur to the eyes. You know, we can burn our eyes and that that is a whole different sort of sort of ghost. It hurts. I had flash burn on my eyes at one point and it, it sucks. You have to just sort of a stay away from light and anti-inflammatories and all that sort of thing. But in terms of a sunburn on the body, we treat it with an ice pack, some aloe. Moisturizer is a really, really good idea if you don't want to, you know, just completely slough it off at the end and then avoiding the sun because the chance of re-injury, especially immediately, is really strong. Dehydration. This is one that I don't like to see anybody suffer from, which is part of the reason that I am constantly <laughs> recommending that people drink water. Dehydration is the beginning of having some pretty big issues. And the symptoms of this are, again, uh, pretty obvious. You've got thirst and dry mouth. But a really bad symptom is if you start having dark urine. I know we've talked about some topics on this particular show that it could be considered gross, but this one, the stuff we've talked about is important when it comes to field survival. And dark urine is a bad, bad sign. That means your kidneys are not processing as much as they should be. You don't have the water to get those toxins out. It's bad. If you've got dry but cool skin, also not a great uh, symptom. Headache and muscle cramps are usually a bit more severe. We can avoid it, of course, by drinking water, but once we're actually at the dehydration point, water is a great idea. Sports drinks are a great idea, mostly because they contain sugars and salts. 
two things that you absolutely need if we're dehydrated and, and then uh, moving to a cool place, making sure that we're not expending more energy, of course, being hot at the same time. Next, we're going to move into heat exhaustion. Now, heat exhaustion, I've also seen several times, and this is when it starts to get really serious. You know, heat exhaustion, we might want to consider taking people to a hospital, basically. And you know if you have heat exhaustion because that headache, a really strong headache comes in. There's nausea, uh, dizziness, weakness, irritability, of course, thirst, heavy sweating, heavy sweating at this point. And then there's an elevated body temp as well. You know, you're not, we're not just sitting at our, at our normal treatment for this cool place, cool fluids, cooling measure, measures and loosing clothing. If we're talking about a cool place, we're talking about shade and preferably AC if we can find it. Cool fluids, literally anything cold to put in to drop that core body temperature is a great, great idea. Cooling measures, you know, we're talking ice packs and into the, the armpits and into the groin area. Uh, wet towel, whatever the case, whatever is available to cool people down and then loosening the clothing so that that heat can escape. So it's not just trapped inside the body. This last one, I know we've all heard about it, heat stroke, is one of particular, a particular sore spot for me. For one thing, I hear people say that they have heat stroke all the time or like, oh man, I think I'm going to get heat stroke or I think you know, I, I, oh, I have heat stroke. Ha 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 ha. And, um, uh, <laughs> for one thing, if you have heat stroke, you're not necessarily going to know it because heat stroke is bad. It's bad news bears. It is hospital, 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 110%. I saw somebody die from it in basic training. It was rough to watch. And so I, when, when folks are saying that, like there is absolutely heat stroke and we need to watch for it, but Heat exhaustion is far more common, is far, far more likely if you're standing up and speaking because heat stroke, we're talking about 104 or higher degree temperature. That's high. That's brain cooking high, which gives you an altered mental state. It is very obvious when somebody is suffering from heat stroke, they make no sense. There's an alteration in sweating. You either have like profuse flop sweat or we have just no sweating whatsoever. Extreme nausea that also begets vomiting. The flushed skin is a really, really big indicator. The rapid pulse and breath, bad signs, and then the throbbing headache. Coma is a very common result. We have unconsciousness and coma that can come from stroke. So again, hospital. But if somebody's having it and you need to get them to the hospital, but the, you know, the paramedics are coming and we're trying to keep them cool in the interim, shade and AC, remove excess clothing, you know, anything to be decent, maybe keep on, but, but honestly, as much as we can take off is the best, get that heat out of the body and then cool by any means available, literally any means available, cool that person down because heat stroke can and will kill you. So heat injuries, by and large, the idea is limit one's time in the sun, drink water, drink water, Drink water. I think I've made my point. <laughs> okay. So lastly, let's talk about cold injuries. Now, cold injuries are not going to be as common for something that we do because a lot of our events take place in the summertime. Now, there are some events that take place in the wintertime. And if you're somebody who enjoys being outdoors at all, this information should hopefully be useful to you as well. 
The first cold injury we're going to talk about is hypothermia. Now, hypothermia can occur from acute or long-term exposure to cold. Wetness is also a huge factor. Improper clothing can contribute to it, fatigue, dehydration, and alcohol or nicotine, both of which are vasoconstrictors and make it harder for blood to move around the body. So if you have all these things going on, bad news bears. That's, that's a really bad place to be, but it, uh, small levels of hypothermia can occur if, even if we just have a few of this. Usually the, the exposure to cold, of course, improper clothing. Oh my gosh, I've seen that so often. You know, I've, there are a few events around here that take place in the quote-unquote wintertime. One of them is Thalbrawl. And to see people wandering around in summer garb, it's like you're, you're begging for a cold injury over there. Like we have to be honest with ourselves about what time of year it is. You know, if it's wintertime, let's not wear shorts and sandals. It may be easier, but we're asking for some sort of cold injury if that's the case. And uh, the symptoms of hypothermia can range quite a bit depending on how severe it is. Uh, starting off for anybody, it's shivering. Then we start to move into some sort of motor control, whether it be large motor control, like uh, actually being able to move and ski and you know, whatever else we're trying to do, uh, down to fine motor control, which is like uh, not being able to operate a zipper. There's a pallor that comes with it, a, a change in the color of the skin. We might get dazed. We might get slurred speech. But once we start to get into the muscle rigidity and rapid breathing category, uh, danger zone. That is some serious danger zone there. So the way we treat hypothermia is with warm and dry clothing. Add fuel and fluids. The best sort of fuel in this sort of situation is we're talking about sugars, carbohydrates. They're going to release fast. Protein's good too, but it takes a while to start to release. Fat is hit or miss. It takes a lot to open it up and, and uh, have it actually produce fuel for the body. But once it does, it gets going pretty well. Chocolate is a great rejuvenator because it contains several of these elements. So yeah, we got to get some fuel in there. Got to get some fluids in there. Got to reduce the heat loss. And honestly, urination is a really, really good way to prevent it if we're out in the, out in the, the wild. I know that when we were working in the MCC, it would get really, really cold out there sometimes. You know, that sun dips below the, the horizon and without the concrete and the heat of the city, it gets really, really, really cold. And so it was not uncommon for me to wake up in the middle of the night just shivering, shivering uncontrollably because this cold had seeped into my being. But going and getting out of my tent and going to the bathroom was a huge, huge thing for that because that liquid inside of us, it takes effort for our body to heat it. You know, if we've got the, the our bladder is full, it takes a lot of effort and it, it honestly cools us down. So if we just get rid of that, just phew, the excess fluid just out of the body, it can really help with uh, preventing this particular heat in, or cold injury. Next, we have frost nip, which is the, the younger brother or the younger cousin of frostbite. This is indicative when we see numbness and white waxy sort of skin. The top layer feels kind of hard, but the deeper tissue is still soft. You know, it, it's, it's, you're not in a great place, but it's not, it's not quite frostbite. It just hurts. When we start to experience this, we want to avoid rubbing at the skin. It can be very tempting to rub our hands together to try to generate heat. But if we have frost nip, then we might have ice crystals in the tissue itself, which can cause greater tissue damage. A, a nice warm bath is a great way to fix this and make sure that we have, and we're talking warm, not hot, warm. 
loosen that restrictive clothing to make sure that the blood can uh, flow properly. And then we really want to avoid refreezing it. Once the tissue is already damaged, it is much, much, much easier to damage again. And that's, that's a good road to frostbite right there. So once we get it treated and once we have it in a good way, making sure that we do not come at it with any more cold is, is important. Frostbite, of course, is the upgrade from this. That also comes with the white skin, but it has a wooden feel to it. The whole thing feels wooden because it's frozen all the way through. The top layer, of course, feels hard. Um, you've got, you can start to have numbness, blistering, swelling, necrosis, gangrene, and secondary infections as it gets steadily worse. Like, those are some big deals. And again, that's just kind of going up the severity. But yeah, frostbite can be really, really, really bad. And we can protect, we want to protect it from further harm. We want to make sure that we can keep it warm and remove that restrictive clothing and hospital. Cannot stress that enough with this one. If you, if we've got hot frostbite, it's time to go to the hospital. But even in that particular case, we do want to avoid that freeze, thaw, refreeze cycle. It's very important because in a lot of cases, it's honestly healthier to just keep it frozen per se, or keep, keep it like in the cool state until we can guarantee that we're in a place where it's not going to refreeze because that's when some serious tissue damage starts to happen. Chill blains. We, I think we've all had that. It's uh, around here. We call it wind burn. And if you've got cold exposure and high humidity with high winds, it, it you know, kind of gives you the rosy cheeks or the kind of hardness on the hands or on the ears it's relatively harmless. You know, it hurts, but it's harmless. It's still good to avoid. Eye injuries can also occur. Uh, your cornea can freeze if we're exposed to freezing winds. Eyelashes can freeze together. Slow, snow blindness is sunburn for the eyes from reflection. And a lot of these can be prevented with goggles or glasses, which are a great idea. And then lastly, we have trench foot, which is something that has afflicted us for quite some time. And this is not not great. And it can happen not necessarily even as a cold injury. Like this is just a, a wet injury more, more like. And it happens when we immerse our feet in cold and or wet conditions. And this causes a high amount of heat loss. We can lose up to 25% of our, of our body heat, more of our body heat through our feet when they're cold and wet. And so the body restricts blood to that area. It doesn't want to be losing that heat. So the vasoconstrictors kick in and it restricts blood to the area. And we can avoid this, of course, by appropriate footwear, dry socks, uh, air drying our feet, massaging our feet. And then if we really like high country uh, hikers will use antiperspirant on their feet in order to uh, keep it from getting too wet, which is honestly a pretty good idea. I hadn't, <laughs> I hadn't thought about that. Um, but the issue with trench foot is that the skin tissue begins to die and slough off because lack of oxygen and nutrients are, are kind of choking it. And then you have a buildup of toxins that aren't being taken away. And so this is literally killing your skin and treating this. We need to have it in a dry place. That is important is to get the area dry, elevate. Yes. Uh, Treat it in warm, but not hot. Again, we're not talking hot. That's going to cause further damage. Bed rest is really important for trench foot. Uh, large amounts of flesh can slough off. And because of its sensitivity to touch like that, and it's, it's not like frostbite where it's frozen all the way through, it, stuff's going to come off. And so making sure that we are 
in bed <laughs> for this one and stay there is important. Keeping it clean is very important as well. A lot of times with trench foot, we're going to have breaks and cracks in the skin, the heel, the toes, the, um, the area in between the toes. And so keeping it clean, very important. And then one is probably going to want pain relief as well. So I know I kind of dove in deep with this, with this injuries section, but I really think that it's important stuff. So I'm glad that we were able to go over it and I apologize heavily to my editor who is going to have to <laughs> deal with this at the end. So I love you. And, um, for the rest of us, let's move on to, uh, our interview with Sumatai, where we're going to talk a little bit more about tactics, strategy, and camp stuff. to discuss those themes with me today is uh, an old friend of mine and a previous guest on the show and I and I dare say probably a regular on the show from here on out uh that's this is uh, Warmaster Sumatai Sumatai good to have you back on thanks i appreciate it i always love coming on well uh we've got some some fun chatting to do today on the subject of like tactics strategy and then of course the politics that kind of go with camp but First, let's talk about the difference between tactics and strategy when it comes to these games that we really enjoy. What are the, the different nuances and maybe techniques that you use to navigate these two different concepts? I mean, when we would go to the field, we always had a strategy in mind, whether it was going to be to herd the other units into each other or whatever that may be. Um you know, and then once you get on the field, all you can really do is work within your own sphere to try to push that forward, you know? Sure. Um, whether that's commanding your your units, your teammates, or whatever, or, you know, in the case of wargaming, obviously you have command of the whole army, so it's a little easier to command strategy that way. Um just like on the modern battlefield where you have communications between units that's more than just yelling at each other. Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, whereas in Velagarth, all you really have is just screaming at each other, which we did that by making everybody repeat orders. You know, when one person says it, everybody says it. And that I, way everybody hears it. I always thought that that was a really good technique that y'all used in the Urukai, especially with a group that was as large as it was then. It just made everything so much more audible. Like, because you have one person, even, even Forkbeard, who has a heck of a voice when he's projecting, still, when you've got the din of battle all around, it really helps to just have that uh, additional. Yeah. When, when 40 people say it all at once, everybody hears it. Everybody mm -hmm. knows to go right, to go left, to charge, to post up, to do whatever you need to do. But the unfortunate thing is, everybody knows it's true yeah you know um and that does you know we thought about making up a code orc words whatever for you know left right all of that stuff and it, it just never stuck yeah you know it would have been great you know but realistically we had a much larger if less experienced force than most of the other units out there at the time sure um so really our strategy was to herd the 
good people into the other good people. Yeah. So they'd wipe each other out, and that way our not-so-good people could just roll over them like a wave, the big green wave. Well, that's uh, that's one solid technique, and, and making your enemies fight each other to the point that they can no longer attack you. That's I, I'm fairly certain that there's a, not a whole lot of military science folks that would disagree with that tactic. No. Yeah, especially when you have you know multiple units on the field that are all it's all basically all on all right right it makes it so much easier to corral or triangle people into into a, a place where they're not going to be comfortable anymore sure where they can't use their tactics and their strategies so if we shrink it down to like a tactical level let's say that instead of commanding the whole of the urukai or even the whole of a warhammer board we're looking at a small section, like a small skirmish between, let's say, Warhammer speaking, you've got a captain with maybe a couple of squads of Marines or a, you know, a commissar with a couple of groups of uh, Imperial Guard nearby. Mm-hmm. And in terms of Belagarth, you've got like perhaps one person standing behind who has maybe four or five people who are in front of them who can hear directly what they are saying. Um, in these situations, what sort of things do you look for in order to exploit the tactical advantage completely. So let's say that both sides are relatively even. Mm-hmm. What sort of things are you looking for to tip the scales in your favor? Boy, man, when things are even, that makes it very hard. Um, you really have to look for your targets of opportunity and take those opportunities when they present themselves. You don't have time to contemplate, is this a good time to go for the target right whatever that target is you have to do it then so it really helps to have when you're in a small skirmish group like that to have experienced fighters so that when you're like go Mm -hmm. they they know what they're going for they're seeing the same openings that you are sure um when it's less than that you need to prepare before you make that engagement with the people and you let your guys know hey we're gonna we're gonna when we get up there we're gonna do this mm-hmm. and that's how we're gonna catch these guys off guard so when i say go we got to do the thing right right you know but yeah in a in a wargaming situation and and on a board game it's it's less important sure um because again you just you have command you know, you move your guys where you want them to move and whatnot. So then it's just about, you know, using cover, boxing your enemy in to a, a triangle of death kind of thing. Getting favorable dice rolls. That helps. Yeah. Bad dice rolls are always bad in, in wargaming. Well, I, was, I, I, I like the fact that, uh, yeah, they absolutely are. Just like tripping it up on the field or, mm-hmm. or such things. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I always found that like Belagarth was better for tactical thinking, whereas 40K is better for that strategic because, because you have that scope. Absolutely. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It's it, it's like commanding a modern batter, battlefield where you can you can talk to people miles and miles away, mm-hmm. you know, across the globe now, but you know, miles and miles away to command different units to do different things and it's, coordinate, it's, yeah. And coordinate it's the same in in wargaming, whereas on Bella, in Belagarth, really, you, you, if your group gets split up by enough of the field, you can't communicate to them anymore in any effective way, you know. And you really have to rely on their experience and your experience to work together 
as a as a unit still. Um, that was the cool thing about uh, Dark Angels when I first started fighting was, you know, it was all about distraction and using your using yourself to distract so that the guy on the other side of the field could zip up behind and that was the end of that guy, you know. And yeah, it was a, a mean, underhanded way to fight, but it was also highly effective. Oh, yeah. And it worked. You know, when Shadow was dancing around in front of somebody, they paid attention to that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we just looked for those opportunities. When you saw somebody that was fighting one of your unit mates, you made the move to go up behind the other guy. We still use that tactic to this day. Oh, I know. <laughs> no, yeah, and, and it's a totally different way of doing things there. It's a totally different tactic because normally we think about a group that goes forward and they work together in like a line or in mm-hmm. like at least a semicircle, whereas what we're trained to do, uh, what we're, we're kind of naturally inclined towards, is exactly what you're talking about. Individual little fights that when you see the contact... You move up to support each other. Not not unlike a Napoleonic tactics mm-hmm. where you have the divisions kind of going out and then when one division gets engagement, the other ones kind of come and support that action. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. It was, uh, it was a very fun thing to do, you know, back then. Um, and it is. It is a lot different than the way most units fight. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it really had a lot to do with the field that we fought on sure. most of the time. You know, the biggest units were three or four people. Hmm. So us being split up and basically controlling the entire field Mm -hmm. by having our unit in every part of the field really made us effective because it wasn't far for one person to get to the next person. Sure. And we were all young and fast and could just zip around the field like, you know, fireflies. Cardio. Mm-hmm. Wish I had that cardio still. We can yeah. get, we can keep good cardio as we get older. It just becomes harder and harder it to does. do so. Yeah, yeah. That's why we start fighting in lines. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and 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 the tactics do make sense for most folks. Like most folks, especially those who have larger weapons or uh, perhaps cannot move all that quickly, mm-hmm. um, or or take advantage of those opportunities as they're presented. The large line fights, the large. Uh, and it's easier to control too, like the larger groups, because mm-hmm. when we're just out there squirreling around, it, even though we're trying to react intuitively, that doesn't always work. Like sure. there, there are miscommunications in that way. Whereas if you've got a larger group and a good command structure, then those miscommunications are going to be far less common. It's true. And that for that type of fighting, for what the Dark Angels did, it, it really works well against other individuals or small groups of two, three, or four. Once you get much bigger than that, it's really hard for two people to wrangle an entire unit. Right. You know, we used to do it against three people, mm-hmm. you know, one in front, one comes up behind, bap, 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 you know, mm-hmm. but by about the third one, everybody else knows what's going on. And if sure. there's much more than that, then things get real squirrely. For sure. So, you know, those those kind of t- everything is situational. Mm-hmm. You know, there's times you need to be together, and there's times you need to separate and go. Right. You know, because yeah, like you were saying, if you've got that that mindset of being out there and and doing the individual thing, and the other folks get wise to it and all come together, 
Well, then if we have less numbers than those other folks do, the wolf packing tactic no longer works because they are one solid force against exactly. the mobile one. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. And, and as we were talking about before that cardio, these kids running around and more and more, we start to spend time in camp. Mm -hmm. Which is, you know, a good place to be, but it's also a place with a totally different sort of war going on, as it were. You know, the first one being just the war against the elements itself. You know, trying to keep people dry, trying to keep people from getting sick, fed, all that sort of thing. Like, I, that's, that's a huge undertaking. As somebody who has been a, a pivotal leader in one of the larger camps at any given event, I'm sure you know all about that. Yeah, I mean, you know, we... Uh... We always try to make sure that our, our camp is much like a family. Mm -hmm. Even even as it got big, we all tried to to, to keep it as like um, like a family environment where we all support each other, we all help out. Everybody works to keep camp clean, you know, and picked up. You don't want two people at the end of the whole event to have to clean up everybody's trash. That oh, sucks. That's the feel-bads right there. Yeah. You know, so, you know, there were a lot of rules we put in place that, you know, to, to, to better our camp, to better the game. You know, at one point it was, it was a rule that if you were a part of the Urukai, you volunteered at the event. Sure. At, at least some of the time, you know, um, and, and things like that. Um, but it, you know, and, and, and we, we've definitely had camp cooks, mm -hmm. um, that came and, and cooked for our camp for the whole week, you know, for a small pittance, um, you could get in on that and get fed by Anvil, who was an amazing cook. Oh, he did so good. Yep. Yeah, you know, and um, and Brewmom also did some. So, we, you know, we had people who did those kinds of things, too, which was really nice. Um, but, we, you know, we always try to keep things as, like, open and, and accessible as possible in our camp. We always like to have a nice open area where other people can come in and hang out, you know, and then have our tents back from that so that people who want to be more private can be farther away. People who want to be closer can be closer to the action. And, you know, we were kind of a loud, ruckus camp for a mm -hmm. long time. And so we chose to keep our camp as far away from the quiet parts of the event as possible because sometimes we had stuff going on till two or three in the morning. And in this way, you were using strategic positioning with your camp, but just in a different way than most people would. Exactly. Like, normally, if you say strategic positioning, especially in the military science, military history aspect, sure. it means you have a favorable position in terms of access to the field. But in a, a case like this, you're actually looking for you know favorable positioning when it comes to the social aspect. Exactly. It was political positioning sure. on the field. It was... It kept everybody happy. We had we could have our party. The people who wanted to sleep could sleep. It didn't, you know, we didn't cause issues that way because we knew we were going to have parties. Sure. And like you say, the, the politics of any of this are just as important as anything else. Uh, a good way to make everybody fight against your unit first the next day is to keep them up all night. True. Or, yeah, you know, just, you know, being, being jerks is never the good way to... Uh, to uh, be at one of these kinds of events because sure. it's not a real battle. You don't just go out and kill those people and 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 take over their village. Right, and that's that. You got to come. You got to talk to them that night and then fight them the next day and do that again for a whole week. Mm -hmm. So, being a giant jerk face just doesn't 
sit well in the community. Right. You know. And even though all things are considered, quote unquote, equal on the field, there's absolutely things that come into play. Like, you know, like you say, if there's a small group of folks who've just been causing trouble for everybody, they're getting removed from the field before much of anybody else. And there's just kind of a, a quiet understanding. <laughs> yeah. You know, as much as, yeah, you're right. As much as people try not to, to be jerks about fighting, when people make you mad, you, you tend to go after them first yeah. on the field. You know, it's and like maybe other... with a little more malice than you would to the other people too. Yeah. I mean, it's like know? any other political rivalry. We're, we're talking about like the French and the, the Habsburgs and the French and the English right now. And just the sheer animosity that existed between these nations that caused those conflicts to be so brutal. Uh, you know, we have the similar thing in, in Belagarth, unfortunately, but like people's emotions, people's mm -hmm. drama does get involved. Yeah. I mean, definitely. I don't, I don't think anybody has the kind of deep down hatred on a molecular level that they had going on back then for anybody else in Bellegarde well, really. Let's hope not. <laughs> There's a few people that I wouldn't mind seeing gone, but most of them are. Not so, in like a guillotine sort of way. Right. Just, just removing you know, from the yeah, field. Yeah, exactly. We're not camp with these people anymore. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, that's, that's neither here nor there. It's, I think that where you place yourselves in camp is just as important as the way you portray yourselves on the field and the mm -hmm. way you, you know, you handle other people around. Sure. You know, just based on how your camp is and what you guys want to do while you're there. Well, and that, and that's another huge portion of what Clausewitz is talking about in this section. You know, he talks about how the primary focus of a camp is toward refreshment. You know, mm -hmm. making sure that you're you're good to go for the next battle. But for something like what we do, where there's less, you know, blood and, and, and real injuries to have to worry about, well, most of the time, like we do still get real injuries true time to time. Um, but our camps have a different purpose. And yours, like you were saying, is kind of set up to be a social center for folks to come and enjoy in uh, some, some party atmosphere, as you were saying. I mean, that's true. But I mean... The, the primary purpose of our camp really is exactly like you said. It's it's the place for you go back to after you fight and mm -hmm. you get water and you get some shade and you, you know, get some air and, and all of that stuff, get some food in you. You know, all of the things that you need to be able to go out and fight again or be able to do whatever it is that you need to do throughout the rest of the day. Yeah, I would say that is definitely the primary purpose of our camp. It just... At night, it tends to turn into a little bit more of a circus. Sure. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, and we definitely, you know, set our camp up for that. We have, you know, water available and, and all of that stuff. We always make sure that there's tons of that stuff there, you know, snacks and, and, on, and all of that. It's always available in our camp. Somebody always has something, you know, no matter what. And that's one of the nice things about camping all together. I do know some units that'll... Well, camp really spread out or just individuals who camp mm -hmm. really spread out and that's cool like that's that's a fine way to do things if you're a more solo person but one mm -hmm. of the severe benefits of camping in a group like y'all do is to have access to all those different resources that you pool together yeah i mean you know we bring we bring a couple extension cords and, and a block and and they bring that and they bring that and they bring that and pretty soon we have lights up at our camp for at night and all of this other stuff and I mean, we have people that have brought fridges and all kinds of other stuff to, to the event. Sure. You know, and, and, uh, 
you know, so having having that that network of people to be like, hey, we want a wall around our camp this year. Right. Everybody bring a piece. Mm-hmm. And, and the, you know, then the burden's not just on one or just a few people, but it's spread out across the group to make the camp the way you want it to be. Right. Um, and, and that definitely is, is, is a benefit of being in a larger unit, I think. I think uh, people like the Gelfs and, or the Urukai, uh, even, you know, God Squad and some of the other, you know, uh, Horde, some of the other, you know, larger units, mm-hmm. you know, definitely use that pooling of resources to make their events better. Right. You know, and, and I, you know, you find a lot of times that the people who end up camping off by themselves end up hanging out at some units camp anyway. Oh, for sure. You know, and, and, and unless there's like a proper knife alley set up at a, mm-hmm. uh, at an event, which is the, the dark angel camp, then I will typically go camp by myself as well. But mm-hmm. you know, most nights I'll be wandering into town as it were <laughs> and, and go into camps like the Gelf and the Urukai, of course. Absolutely. Uh, because that's the place to be, not necessarily the place I want to sleep. But the place that I definitely want to party, you know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so because of that atmosphere, that brings us to another uh, real issue that camps can have. Now, uh, Clausewitz died from cholera at the end of his life because of an outbreak that was occurring in the Eastern Europe. And famously, in his, his book, the section that I was just reading, he talks about how sanitation isn't directly related to combat. And I think that his death kind of proves otherwise because of the circumstances of it. Y'all have a lot of people coming and going from mm-hmm. your camp. And not only does this present the the threat of, I, I, this term is probably not going to be useful going on for, but we used to call it camp plague. Mm-hmm. You know, when, when somebody brings a cold and somebody brings the flu and somebody brings some strep and everybody walks away with it and you don't know how, what you have, it's just camp plague or, or event plague. Mm-hmm. Um, but how do you prevent something like that? How do you maintain a safe atmosphere and a clean atmosphere while at a place like an event where, yeah, that can go south really fast? You know, that's that's actually a really good question. Um, you know, we definitely kept, made sure that we had, you know, plenty of garbage cans and all of that kind of stuff around our camp mm-hmm. so that we kept a clean camp. I think that's, you know, a big part of it. Um, you know, I... I don't drink off of other people's cups. Smart. You know, things like that, because camp plague really is a thing, mm-hmm. you know. Chaos Wars plague is a, is a thing, you know. Um, it's definitely happened more than once at Chaos Wars where a bunch of people got sick. Right. I, you know, I wouldn't say that they were, like, deathly ill or anything no. like that, but, you know, a little stomach bug, whatever. A little cocktail of things from yeah. all over the country. Right, yeah, <laughs> you know. Um, so, you know, I really tried to keep to myself as far as that stuff goes. Um, it's not like we had any hard, fast rules or anything, but, you know, we did our best to keep our, our camp clean and safe, you know, and provide a safe environment for people to come and hang out in, you know, regardless of whether that has to do with disease or any of the other various things that can happen in, in the middle of the night when people are being stupid. Sure. You know, I imagine here going forward that uh, hand sanitation stations are going to become fairly uh, routine at a lot of I places. Can see that. You know? Yeah, because I'm th- I'm pretty sure that I'm going to do it if we ever do it. When next time I'm I'm doing knife alley, if somebody hasn't brought hand sanitizer, I will, and I'll just put it up on a little stool near the entrance. And be like, y'all, y'all dirty creatures, clean up. <laughs> yeah, and I mean. I could definitely think of, we've definitely had hand sanitizer in the camp. Mm-hmm. You know, we have that kind of stuff. We have first aid kind of stuff. Sure. We have, 
you know, sunscreen and, and that kind of stuff. Everybody brings some. Right, right. You know, so if anybody does run out, there's always somebody who has some, you know, and that's, we do those things to make sure to keep our people safe. You know, we make sure our people drink water. Sure. And, you know, if they're drinking adult beverages, that they drink water Absolutely. too, you know, and don't get too far off the chain, you know. I would say the most common injury that we see in something like Bellagarth is a heat-related injury, whether it's dehydration or exhaustion or whatever the case may be. I feel like the heat-related injuries are one of our most common. Are sunburns? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I, w- I would definitely say so, along with the things that come along with the side effects of those. So exhaustion makes you tired, then you fall, you twist an ankle, you step wrong, you swing wrong, you hurt yourself, you hurt other people. Sure. Um, those kinds of things, you know. I think it's definitely important to, to watch for those signs in your own people and make sure that, you know, when you see your teammates getting just wore down to nothing. Getting you know, sloppy. Right? Yeah, getting sloppy on the field, you know, then it's it's time to take a break, you know. And sometimes that means taking your whole army off the field. Sure. Because one guy needs a break and you know that if you don't take the whole army to back to camp, that guy is probably going to hurt himself or hurt someone else. Sure. You sure. know, and that's what it's going to take because he won't go if everybody else doesn't go kind of thing. You <laughs> right. Know? No, I mean, that. yeah, that makes sense. And it's something, like you say, we absolutely have to watch out for because not only is that a risk to our own health, but it affects our performance on the field, like you say. And I think as as leaders of your group, whatever it is, be it the realm, the unit, the the whatever, you it's your responsibility to look out for your people and look out for the ones who might not be looking out for themselves because they're maybe they're just having too much fun right, right. to be looking out for their own well-being. I dig that. So kind of backpedaling to something we had talked about earlier regarding politics, and, and this is more politics between units and between realms. You have been a part of the genesis of some fairly new things. You started Stygia, mm-hmm. and you were a part of the genesis of the Western Urukai. In these cases, as a new and burgeoning entity, there was a whole lot of political challenges, I imagine, to, to establish what you were doing. Uh, can you uh, speak at all to what kind of strategies you had in order to bridge that gap between a, being a newbie and being a respected member? Because we are now. Like Stygia is a very respectable sure. uh, realm, and the Urukai are still very well talked about and a respectable unit. How how do you take something from from new to better, and not just in terms of like practice and making it better martially, but in terms of politically establishing it? I I think a big part of establishing your character is mm-hmm. really what you're doing, whether it's the unit, the person, the realm, whatever is is being honest Hmm. sometimes brutally honest you know but being honest about what's going on what you're doing being consistent you Hmm. know being an honorable person group whatever you know you especially with a like a new realm when you're building a new realm you have to be open and willing to welcome people in with open arms regardless of how they look how they might act what they might look like you don't know you don't know them from adam they're just another person who's interested and that could be another potential you know knight or 
war master or whatever, someone who, you know, president of Bellegarth, you don't know, you know, um, I've seen some people who are pretty big jerks, um, turn themselves around completely in this sport. Sure. And become good people who are respected members of the community, you know, um, and I, I, yeah, that's, that's a good point. Um, you know, being ambassadors, not just to the other units and not just to, um, other realms, but to people in your community, making sure that when you're building a community locally, that it's a quality one, that it's something that can establish itself later on. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, that I, I'm, couldn't be more proud of our realm. I think that it has gone from the few people fighting in the park on the weekend to a, you know, fully realized thing, you know, and part of that was we held an event. We got, had people come up from, from Idaho, you know, those guys were great. And I, I couldn't thank those guys enough. Um, and they were like, Hey, we have this thing come up going on. You guys should come down. Right. You know, so we went to chaos wars and, you know, and I made more friends there and met more people. And it, you know, it was just me and one other guy at the time. Mm -hmm. And we were the only ones that went to events the first three years or so, other than the event that we had here. Right. Um, you know, but after going for a couple of years, they were like, Hey, you guys are really cool. You should come to our war council. And we were like, well, we're from a different game. And they were like, yeah, we don't really care. Come on and over. we were like, cool. Yeah. And they were like, come on over. So we did. And you know, we started becoming involved in the politics of Western sword fighting, mm -hmm. um, which led to a bit of a fallout with the leadership of Eastern sword fighting. Um, no names mentioned, um, but they're bald. And, <laughs> and, uh, so we dropped our ties with that group and we joined Bellegarth. Um, and from then on out, you know, we sought to become a member of the, the war council, the political body of the group, you know, and once we did that, we tried to instigate changes, changes that helped the game. You know, we got rid of giant, ugly stabbing tips and turned them into like stabbing tips that feel like a normal sword does instead right. of a q-tip um because that's plenty safe mm -hmm. you know and things like that and we also tried to be the voice of reason when you know dumb things were introduced you know and i think that got us a lot of respect um that and not acting out of emotion you sure. know acting out of a you know this is the reason why things should be a way you know, I, I think that's stupid. Well, that doesn't help anybody, and it makes you look like a child, you right. know, and that doesn't get you anybody's respect. I feel like in, in a huge part, um, the uh, the realm was also, it was kind of brought up to be self-policing. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it, like it was an individual entity where people could kind of be themselves, but there was also very much in a, a implication of you are representing the realm. There is a part of this that you we, we need to represent well, and there was admonishment if that wasn't met. Absolutely. Yeah, we definitely wanted, I mean, yeah, when we first started out, it was kind of a free-for-all and whatever, but, you know, as we came forward, you know, we started realizing that, you know, the actions of our people reflect on the unit or the realm um, and did have to police that, especially even more in our unit, more than the realm. The realm was very, we really had good people here. Sure. You know, and we really didn't have to do a lot of that kind of policing, 
you know, at events things get a little rowdier and we had to be a little bit more heavy handed with the, hey man, you guys are representing everybody here. Right. So when you go off and get stupid in somebody else's camp, that reflects on everybody else. Mm Mm-hmm. And we don't want to be the unit that people think those guys are a bunch of jerks. Right. They're going to come to your camp and cause problems. Sure. Sure. You know, so, yeah, we definitely put the kibosh on that stuff because that's not cool. Absolutely. Well, we could probably talk about this all night, but (laughs) we are actually out of time. But thank you so much for coming on again. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. I I always enjoy talking with you, Yaga. Me too. Well, now we're going to move on and we're going to talk about our next stage of the War of the First Coalition. Finally, we're going to have a brief chat about how the army, the French army, went from its royal form to its revolutionary form. When it went from the crumbling edifice that it once was to the army that managed to at least get a draw out of the Battle of Valmy, which was a big deal. So this revolutionary army, it kind of started around the fall of the Bastille. Remember the National Guard, the first organization known as the National Guard, was established. As, as the Royal Army continued to disintegrate, this idea of the National Guard, the People's Army, definitely started to gain traction. The transition was a little messy, though, because, of course, after the fall of the French monarchy and the sort of discipline, the, the draconic discipline that they imposed, the army kind of went south for a, a long time. There wasn't that immediate return in terms of uh, it being beneficial because for the longest time, the army had been used basically as a penal institution, which is to say that that's where the dregs of society ended up. It wasn't, it wasn't a professional army in the way that we think of it nowadays with, you know, folks, uh, being recruited and joining of their own volition and having a reason, a drive to be there. At this time, again, it was for prisoners, it was for convicts, it was for folks who couldn't find work anywhere else, it was for folks who were disgraced or dishonored. It was not necessarily a good place to be in the ranks themselves. And so this did not do well, and that kind of overflowed, and you had a a lot of different pretty severe issues that resulted from that, uh, from assaults to a, a murder on occasion. An officer was murdered because, you know, the the ranks just kind of went to to heck in a handbasket. And at this time, they were floating the idea of universal conscription, which is to say that everybody serves. Every citizen is also a soldier, was the idea. And there was no escape from it. We couldn't purchase our way out of it. You know, this was something that was done then and something that was has been done recently. I, you know, you heard about the draft all the way up until Vietnam. And even there, you know, people would basically purchase a replacement by buying their way into college, which was something that a poorer person could not do. And so by by trying to make yourself seem more, quote unquote, a, a valuable member of society in that way, no, you serve anyways. A deal of universal conscription, there is no escape. There is, there is no flat feet keeping one from the, uh, from serving one's country. Now this was, this was met with a lot of different <laughs> reactions. It did tend to polarize uh, the the um, the society at the time, but we'll kind of get to that here in a second. 
It, there was also the idea floated that military action had to be sanctioned by civilian authorities. And this was the idea of the legislature uh, being able to declare war. And they're the only ones that declare war. The United States of America is supposed to be set up that way according to our constitution. The only uh, legal body that we have to declare war is the legislature. It hasn't worked that way for a little while, which is why we've gotten away with calling things police actions. But yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll just leave that to you. This also came with the strict financial control on manpower, the rate of pay, recruitment methods, and code of discipline. You recall that there was, it was a big deal when power consolidated underneath the king, when they rounded up all the different nobles and said, okay, we're all going to serve my army. There's not going to be this disparate loyalty to the, to the crown, loyalty to the faith, loyalty to family, but, 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 we're loyal to the king, the monarch first and foremost. And this is a transition of that to a more secular nation in which that same loyalty, that same uh, control is instead in the hands of the state, which again, continues into modern republics and democracies to this day. And all of this polarized radicals to moderates, to reactionaries. And a lot of those reactionaries were increasingly former military who may have supported the revolution in the first place, but then after it started doing all of these radical transitions to the everything said, mm, maybe this isn't my cup of tea. So that, that started to bleed out some of those folks as well. So by the time this war broke out, we had the volunteers of or 1791. Now these volunteers were green, very green. Like they hadn't seen combat. They were not blooded yet. But they had a lot of things that were really working well for them. First off, they were deeply attached to the revolutionary ideals. They were willing to die for them. Like they had signed up in order to defend these ideals and, and willingness to lay down their lives to do so. They elected their own officers, which meant that they were serving people that they found, thought actually deserved the position. You know, folks that they wanted to serve underneath. They were not yet a national army per se, because there was a lot of occupational and regional differences. You had a high amount of recruitment from closer to the border, the German border, and less from the, from the other sides. And of course, occupationally, the folks who could afford to take that time off, they were volunteers, not necessarily being paid. And so it wasn't necessarily peasants who were there because they wouldn't be able to support their family from that position. So you did have a kind of a, a, a difference, uh, kind of a, a typecast that was going into this, but it was, it was a great start. Now, the downside to this was that there was a lack of strict discipline. You know, you didn't have that, that drill as, as firmly in there. And they had a harder time taking orders. You know, it's easier when it's just a top down, this is the way it is. You're going to have to deal with it. Okay. You know, that's what we're doing. It's a whole nother thing to have to believe that, that everything is a democracy. One of the things the drill sergeant used to tell me is that the battlefield is a dictatorship, not a democracy. Because you got who's in charge, you do what they say, and that's it. Because otherwise there's a lot of waste when it comes to efficiency, when it comes to timing and all that sort of thing. And this was excellent because troops serving from conviction could be used in more versatile ways. They could be sent off to do uh, things that were more independent from the main body because there wasn't the fear of desertion. They wanted to be there. You knew they wanted to be there. They were volunteers. And so there was an ability to have greater flexibility from this. And so the mix of veterans who knew what they were doing and these volunteers who are full of the revolutionary spirit is what provided the victory at Volmy. 
I mean, don't get me wrong. Kellerman did great. But the army he was working with, this army, this, this beginning of the revolutionary army, was a really, really good thing. So next time, I promise, we're going to be getting more into the uh, 19, 1792 and 1793 time frame. That's our show. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't had enough of the art of wargaming in your life, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram, where I occasionally post funny and educational memes. If you want to get in touch with the show directly, you can email us at artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com with any questions, comments, or concerns that you might have. Also be sure to check out all of our sister shows on the Earworm Network, including General Nerdery, Word Balloons, Fried Squirms, and more. We're working hard on having something for everyone. And again, you can find those at earverm.com. That's E-A-R-V-V-Y-R-M. You can also find that in the show notes. But for now, this has been Yaga Malark, signing off. Mm-hmm.